This is Solving Problems and Starting New Ones, a show that tries to be an incubator of great ideas and a place to challenge popular wisdom. Today, we're talking about green energy and we're continuing our series on border security with Chapter 2. And you'll get all this from a guy in the street perspective. But before we begin, hit the subscribe button, follow the show, and turn on notifications so you know when new episodes are out. Well, we were going to do a 2020 post-apocalypse election of 2020 episode, but I think I'm going to hold off until the dust completely settles. As with this recording, the fire seems to be out on the Trump campaign, but I still feel there's some embers burning. So, at least at some, at some point we'll do a post-election episode when all the facts are out. Plus, this episode is pretty packed as is. Alright, alright, let's hop into our first segment, a continuation of our deep dive at border security with Chapter 2, Invite the World, Invite the Problems. We're going to go through quite a few topics with the main narrative being that being the economic effects of illegal and legal immigration. Let's start with the housing crisis. Now, this is a phrase thrown around that has a couple of meanings. What I'm defining it as is an increase in rent prices. So let's talk about why they're so high in certain areas. If you look up the top 10 most expensive cities to live in, 7 out of 10 of them have the highest concentration of immigrants. Right now, there are more than 10 million Americans, depending on welfare programs, to pay rent. And you can imagine there would be 10 million more that would receive help, but the budget constraints of the program prevent that. San Francisco's uh, housing prices have risen so rapidly that a UN official called it a human rights violation. In Los Angeles, where immigrants make up 35% of the population, home values have shot up 50% in the last five years, making 9 out of 10 homes unaffordable to L.A. residents. Currently, this country is short by 4 million affordable houses. And this is a study from 2019 before the COVID-19 economic downturn. So I'd imagine it's more today. So what that means, even before the shutdowns, that there were 35 affordable units for every 100 middle-class or poor families. In Nevada, it's even worse. They actually uh, recently had an economic boom, which attracted uh, immigrants in search of work. Right now, there are 15 affordable units for every 100 low-income household. And when you spend more than 30%, which is what's considered affordable, of your income on rent, what happens? You cut back on health food, and just generally boosting the economy around you. Now, a lot of mainstream thinkers will say we need to build more affordable units. Okay, but when you take in 50% of the world's immigrants on a yearly basis, those units fill up pretty quickly. Last year alone, the U.S. took in over a million immigrants, mostly low-skilled workers looking for affordable places to live and also close to where the jobs are. And when you factor in that a lot of immigrants are willing to live in cramped quarters, the high rent doesn't have as much of a negative impact. That may be offensive, but it's true. So with house prices going up, which is good for real estate investors, it's not particularly good if you're a renter. Now let's talk about the job market. In July 2016, President Trump said, quote, Decades of record immigration have produced lower wages and higher unemployment for our citizens, especially for African-American and Latino workers. He told a cheering crowd. Hillary Clinton, at a uh, convention a week later, she made the claim that immigrants, both legal and illegal, improve the economy for everyone, saying, quote, I believe that when we have millions of hardworking immigrants contributing to our economy, it would be self-defeating and inhumane to try and kick them out. Comprehensive immigration reform will grow our economy. Now, you may like one over the other, but the truth is never untrue. 
And for many Americans, the influx of uh, immigrants hurts their prospects significantly. Anyone who tells you that immigration doesn't have any negative effects doesn't understand how it really works. When the supply of workers goes up, the price that companies have to pay to hire workers goes down. Wage trends over the past half century suggest that a 10% increase in the number of workers with a particular set of skills probably lowers the wage of that group by at least 3%. Even after the economy has fully adjusted, those skill groups that receive the most immigrants will still offer a lower pay compared to those that receive fewer immigrants. Both low- and high-skilled Americans are affected by the influx of immigrants. But because a disproportionate percentage of immigrants have few skills, it is low-skilled American workers, including many blacks and Hispanics, who have suffered the most from this wage dip. The monetary loss is sizable. A typical high school dropout earns about $25,000 annually. According to census data, immigrants admitted in the past two decades lacking a high school diploma have increased the size of low-skilled workforce by 25%. As a result, the results, um, the earnings of this particular vulnerable group has dropped between $800 to $1,500. We don't need to rely on complex statistical calculations to see the, see the harm that's being done to some workers. You just need to see how employers have reacted. A decade ago, Crider Inc., a chicken processing plant in Georgia, was raided by immigration agents, and 75% of its workforce vanished over a single weekend. Shortly after, Crider placed an ad in the local newspaper announcing job openings at higher wages. Similarly, the flood of news reports on uh, the abuse of H-1B visa programs, which we'll talk about in a bit, shows that companies are more than willing to dismiss their current tech workforce when they find cheaper immigrant workers. Keep in mind, somebody's lower wage is always someone else's higher profit. At the same time, immigrants who come here will obviously make more money working in the U.S. than whatever country they came from, so big companies will make their profit, poor immigrants get a chance at a decent life. So we have to factor in all these things when we look at the value of immigration in total. And there's one more complicating factor. Immigrants receive government assistance at higher rates than U.S. citizens. The higher cost of all these services provided to immigrants and the lower taxes they pay because they have lower earnings inevitably implies that on a year-to-year -year basis, immigration creates a fiscal hole of $50 billion, a burden that falls on the American population. I said a quote earlier from Hillary Clinton, and she is correct when she said immigration adds to the economy. It does. How much? About $50 billion. So immigration costs the U.S. $50 billion, and it also adds $50 billion. So, you know, it's kind of a wash. No big deal, right? For most people who cover this topic, it is. But for this show, we always go at least one layer deeper. That $50 billion that's taken clearly hurts and takes away from low-income Americans who compete with immigrants. And the $50 billion they add, for the most part, goes to the employers, though immigrants do, uh, do come out ahead, but at the expense of the working-class American. And as I said before, and I'll say it again, do not be one of those people that say immigrants only take jobs Americans won't do. That is bullshit. You know that. There's no such thing as a job an American won't do. There are, however, jobs Americans won't do for $5.50 an hour. So let's talk about one more thing, and that is the H-1B visas, which for some reason I struggle remembering how to say. Anyway, the, uh, the HPK visas are basically visas that go to immigrants that have a specialty skill. Most of the time it goes to IT, you know, tech-type work. And about 70% of these H-1N1 visas go to India. So... What's the problem here? 
Well, to summarize, I'll steal a quote from 2015 by Senator Chuck Grassley. The program was intended to serve employers who could not find the skilled workers they needed in the United States. Most people believe that the employers are supposed to recruit Americans before they petition for an H-1B worker. Yet, under the law, most employers are not required to prove to the Department of Labor that they tried to find an American to fill the job first. And, if there is an equally or even better qualified U.S. worker available, the company does not have to offer him or her the job. Over the years, the program has become a government-assisted way for employers to bring in cheaper foreign labor. And now it appears the for- these foreign workers have taken over rather than complement the U.S. workforce. End of quote. If you find this topic cute, you can, uh, you can find plenty to read about the abuses towards Indian people by the companies that hire them through this program. Now, a quick fix on this would be simply having a law that requires going through the Labor Department to ensure that they have tried to hire American workers first. It's this kind of bullshit that screws over college kids searching for work, and when they can't find it, it leads them to socialism, and then all of a sudden they become commies. Anywho... Any rational person can see the problem with these visas and the simple solutions to fix it. So, what happened December 2nd, 2020? A bill was unanimously passed by Democrats and Republicans to make it easier for people with H-1B visas to get green cards. Okay, that helps with uh, some of the issues they have. And also, it adds that a company can have up to 50% of H-1B visa holders. Nothing in the bill addresses the problems for American tech workers though it will help Indian immigrants and the abuses they face through the program. So if your goal is to help Google and all the other big tech companies make more money, this bill is going to help. And if you think voting Republican or Democrat is going to result in rational solutions, well, I still have that market in Wuhan to sell you. The bill has not been finalized yet, but it's something to keep an eye on. Now, once we understand immigration and its impact on the economy this way, It's clear why these issues split Americans, why many low-skilled or especially skilled Americans are taking one side and why immigrants and business owners are taking another. Any immigration policy is ultimately not just a statement on how much we care about immigrants, but how much we care about one group over another. For me, when looking at solutions, we have to find a way to still be a country that takes in the tired, the poor, and the huddled masses. We just can't do that at the expense of another group in the same spot. We're worrying about the wrong thing, things. With policy fights focused on how many and which immigrants to accept, and not enough on how to migrate the harm they create along the way. So what's the solution for all this? Well, and I talked a little bit about this in episode three. One of the things we should do is maybe take a two-year break, stop all immigration, spend that time clearing up the backlogs of paperwork of people who have are even waiting here for their citizenship, sometimes decades. Allow for you know home development in the cities to catch up with the population before adding more people. Maybe a policy that does focus on amnesty for hardworking illegals uh, with a fee attached, like I talked about before, but only after passing a law for e-verification for all employees. That alone would end most of the debate on illegal immigration. To put it simply, we need to end this country's immunity is just simply being organized. All right, all right, we're moving on to green energy. We're going to talk about the Green New Deal, Paris Climate Agreement, 
and how to save the planet as only I can. So, you've heard a lot about solar panels, so you probably can name the two cancer-causing agents found inside them, right? And you probably know how long a solar panel lasts before it needs to be replaced. Along with that, you probably know how long uh, those over 800,000-pound wind turbines last. And lastly, you are probably aware of who is in control of the carbon credits when it comes to the Paris Climate Agreement. And if you don't know the answers to these, then you certainly know by now that our climate solutions have problems. In the years between 1868 to the 1960s, you could set rivers on fires with the amount of pollution in them from the industrial and sewage plants. In June of 1969, sparks from a set of train tracks fell onto the Cuyahoga River, igniting the industrial debris on the surface of the water. The flames from the river reached as high as five stories. Now, the fire was put out in 20 minutes, but those sparks would lead to the environmental revolution. It would raise awareness to the nation of the relationship between city and nature. They would create movements that culminated into the Environmental Protection Act, the EPA. Since the 1960s, new passenger vehicles are 98% cleaner. Fuels are much cleaner. Lead has been eliminated from the air and sulfur levels have been brought down 90%. They actually used to refine oil to make gas with lead. And then studies showed that it actually lowered people's IQs for decades, which is believed to have led to higher crime rates in the cities between the 1960s to the 1990s. Today, the air quality has improved, even with more cars and miles traveled. Clearly, we can always do better, but to ignore how much work has been done for the better is just complete ignorance. So why is our mainstream society losing its mind like nothing has ever changed, like there's never been any progress? Well, it's two things. One, movements don't move unless you keep moving. And two, money. And money can improve movements or slow them down. So let's cover some of the ideas that are currently being pushed to save this old planet. Are solar panels the answers to all our problems? In 2016, there was an estimated 250,000 metric tons of solar panel waste. By 2050, it could reach as high as 78 million metric tons. And due to the impurities of the glass, it can't be recycled. And you need a pretty sophisticated company that can take out all the cancer-causing cadmium and lead out of the panels. Add to the fact that you'll need to mine and blow up mountains just to find all the nickel that you need to build the solar panels. Also, solar panels last between any, last around 10 to 25 years, and having enough rare earth metals and finding a way to recycle properly is extremely important. And lastly, the solar panels, depending on what they're being used for, cannot uh, they can't afford to stop working because of the lack of sun. So what's their backup? Natural gas or, co or coal. So you're cutting back on one problem partly and replacing it with more problems. Uh, how about wind turbines? A wind turbine uh, blade can be the size of a Boeing 747 wing, to give you a, a kind of a visual. And you need a diamond-encrusted saw to cut into the pieces. These things are built to withstand hurricane-force winds. In early 2020, 870 blades were brought to a landfill in Casper, Wyoming. They need to be replaced, on average, every 10 years. In just the U.S., 2,000 blades will need to be retired to the landfills. There are companies finding ways to recycle the blades and turn them into floor panels, for example, but they are extremely far and few of them. Along with that, turbines also use fossil fuels as backups when there's no wind. What about biomass? Sounds nice, but it's actually just burning trees. What about ethanol? They rely on coal plants, and also they take up a lot of land and resources to grow corn to make the ethanol. How about electric cars? Good luck powering up your electric car with a solar panel at night. 
which means you're dependent on natural gas and coal. How about the words green energy? Do you think an incinerator in Detroit would be classified as green energy? How about cow fat? Should that be considered renewable energy? You may want to look into that. I talked about order a few episodes ago and how it's a good thing because it's the opposite of chaos. However, I also talked about how you always need to question who creates the order and are they good. So when someone says their company is a green company or they say their product is renewable, you have to ask the question, who defined these terms? And how many of these companies are just playing pretend and getting help from the kings and queens to do so? Let's talk about the Green New Deal that's floating around Congress created by Alexandria the Commie Cortez. Anywho, the Green New Deal is a wish list of plans to eliminate emissions from fossil fuels and a list of social justice programs. Just a side note, if you if you hear anyone use the term social justice, slap them in the face for me, would you? There is no there is only justice. Social justice is just some malleable term that changes definitions to meet whatever situation they feel is unfair. Always question who defines the terms. It's a manipulative, bullshit, nonsensical phrase. So, a lot of people focus on the cost of the Green New Deal, which is trillions, and attention gets averted to some of the more unicorn utopia ideas. The only thing I really paid attention to was the fact that nuclear energy was not part of the plan. According to a Spider-Man comic book I read last month and scientists, Nuclear energy is the cleanest energy going in this country. Obviously, it's not something that's going to help fuel cars or planes, but it should play a major factor in any green energy solution. Not only is it not being used for the Green New Deal, but the plan would have been to abolish it. So why is that? The only answer I could find from them is that nuclear energy requires mining of uranium, which causes havoc on the environment. Also, the cost of building a reactor is billions of dollars. Okay, so... Solar panels are okay, even though they have the same problem with cost, mining, and waste. You don't think a couple of trees and forests have been leveled just to put up an entire field of solar panels that can barely provide enough energy to light up a toaster? Again, I have to question, who's defining these terms? And why is this even something people talk about? Even if the entire country agreed to go back to the Stone Age when it comes to energy, it would mitigate global temperatures by a few tenths of a degree Celsius by 2100. Are the politicians that support this really care about the earth? Or are they just spokespeople for the green energy companies so they can get more tax subsidies for these companies, which in turn they'll donate a chunk of that money to their campaign? The same cycle used with the, uh, with the teachers' unions, as we talked about in episode 13. It smells kind of scammy. Which brings me to the final part of this. The Paris Climate Agreement, which in a nutshell is a global agreement to bring down carbon emissions by way of carbon credits. Now, just to be clear, this agreement is just nice words. There's no legal action against your country if you break this agreement. It's like when you tell a friend, you know, hey, you'll call him tomorrow and you don't, or like wedding vows. It's just nice words. You don't have to take them seriously. And a lot of countries are, are abiding by this thing anyway. But it is a step in a dangerous direction. Why? Because when people talk about carbon credits which would be distributed to different countries and companies, allowing a certain amount of carbon to go in the air, we never ask who controls the carbon credits. Who's defining these terms? Is it Al Gore and his rich friends? Here's an interviewer talking to Al Gore and billionaire Richard Branson. Is Al Gore a prophet? <laughs> um, 
I just spelled profit. <laughs> and when you look up who would be in charge of the carbon credits, you'll likely find it'll say it's a group of scientists. But the thing about scientists, they're not out there selling t-shirts and hot dogs. They, they need investors. And that's where you'll find some uh, pretty familiar names. And that will lead you down some rabbit holes. All of the mirrors that you see there are built by the Koch brothers, Guardian Glass Industry, a company that they control. Coke Carbon creates a lot of the inputs that are used to create the cement and the concrete and the steel. And not only that, they build the plants that builds polysilicon for solar cells. They have they actually their own solar line called Solar Molex. From every step of the process, the Koch brothers are there. But they're the evil doers. Yeah, the, the funny part is that when you criticize solar plants like this, you're accused of working for the Koch brothers. <laughs> that's the idiocy in all of this. This absolutely cannot extend civilization's life. This relies on the most toxic and industrial processes that we've ever created. And now you have organizations like Project 350 whose purpose is going around colleges to help raise awareness for environmental issues and start protests for companies to switch over to green energy. Okay. One of the uh, investment firms that um, Project 350 recommends is called the Green Century Fund. This investment company claimed that the money they raise goes into protecting the environment and producing renewable energy. Well, a few years ago, there was a deep dive into their spending, and here's where the money went. 0.6% of that money went into solar and wind. The rest went into multiple banks, multiple mining companies, oil and gas infrastructure, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, ExxonMobil, Chevron, BlackRock Company, which is uh, the largest investor of deforestation, Boeing's, Wells Fargo, uh, Monsanto's, biomass companies, and uh, many, many more. Did you really think big money people were going to let a new industry pop up without getting their share? We're 21 episodes deep, people. You should be smarter by now. So, we're going to move on to solutions and... I know I probably could have turned this into multiple episodes instead of trying to cram everything into one segment, but my hope is that I've proven my point to at least some degree, and hopefully you'll take an interest and do some research on your own on a local level. So how do we save the planet? Well, first, we need to get that narcissistic question out of people's heads. The planet will be fine. It will always be fine, no matter what happens. You, on the other hand, not so much. So that's step one. Step two... Don't be like John Kerry, who might be in charge of cli uh, climate solutions under the Biden administration, and buy property on the beach, because that means you're not taking it seriously. Step three, end subsidies for green energy companies. They're all billionaires that run those places. Put that tax money towards bombs, more bombs. We need to win. Step four, understand that people who say the words, we need to stop climate change, need a slap. There is no stopping this. If you understand that, then you'll know what you need to do to save yourself. You need investment in levees, seawalls, look into floodgates, carbon catchers, which is probably your best hope, plant more trees instead of cutting them down for biomass companies, which would help absorb the carbon in the air. But these are some of these things are expensive options, so how do you pay for it? Last step. Yes, folks, I'm going to say the T word, taxes. I know, I, I, I try to avoid it, but I have no choice. But not from you or from me. A carbon tax on companies that pollute the air. They dirty it, they clean it. And that would include these so-called green energy companies, along with these fossil fuel giants. They would have to pay too. That's it, everybody. That's all I got for you. If you enjoyed the show, leave a five-star review on iTunes. It helps us get noticed. And this was Solving Problems and Starting New Ones.
turn this fucking recording off. It'll be, uh, it'll be good shit. Let's fall asleep. In the desert, the Joshua tree stands, waiting, waiting for the giant ground sloths and the mammoths that shall never return. The Joshua tree depended on the giant mammals to reach up high and eat their seeds and thus disperse the Joshua tree. But now, stranded in time and space, the Joshua tree awaits a new fate to be sacrificed in the name of progress. Joshua trees are torn down to make way for solar projects. 23ABC's Cassie Carlisle travels to the Mojave Desert to talk to neighbors. They're not your usual tree. More like something from fiction, but these Joshuas are causing quite an uproar. No, it makes me sick. I'm there clearing them off, killing them real quick, and now they're grinding them up, getting rid of all the evidence. 